Uh, the last talk I want to end with uh, for a retreat, uh, in continuing um, what we started last night in great, uh, talking about great marriages, um, I hope that some of the principles resonated in your small groups. Did you guys have a good small group time last night? Yes. Yeah, we did too. I mean, we had just three, three or three of our guys, and us three husbands were talking about our families, and it was, it was pretty cool. Uh, I hope wherever you were at, whatever group, I, uh, I mean, some of you guys were meeting forever, like forever, which was really cool to, to kind of see. And then, like, three quarters of us jumped in the pool, I think, right? <laughs> uh, and then we had Kablamian after. That's why, if you see the bloated people, there's the one, they're the ones that had the Kablamian. Um, was that a laugh of admission? <laughs> <laughs> it's like saying, oh, how many months? Uh. <laughs> uh. Yesterday I talked about this idea of 50-50, and this is number four. Uh, if we don't break this mentality of this 50-50 thinking, I, I think we will... Um, short sight and short track our marriages. 50-50 um, uh, participation, um, it feels as though um, in the objective tally of the relationship, it's always balanced. And I do my part, you do your part. And there is this great expectation. One of the questions last night was about unmet expectations. And I think the person that wraps his or her mind around a 50-50 relationship is destined for um, unmet expectations. They will be, um, they will be just disheartened. Um, they're going to feel bored. They're going to feel hurt. Uh, they're going to feel misunderstood in the relationship. They're going to feel as always as though that I've communicated to you. You should know. Um, but how come you don't know uh, what I'm trying to say? And it stems, in my opinion, from this idea of equal participation. And I think about dancing. I mean, if you think about it, how do people, like, if you think of the analogy of dancing and a 50-50 relationship, it's as though I have half the dance floor, you have half the dance floor. That's not how you dance. Like, I dance on my half and you dance on your half, right? Dancing is like the tango and you both stick together all throughout the floor. And there is this constant move back and forth all throughout. And that idea of 50-50, again, it must be broken. And one of the things that I want to say about this, um, if we think that marriage is 50-50, um, I'm always unsatisfied. And um, uh, I think one of the, the things that we lose um, in this type of a relationship is creativity. And why do I say that? Like, I think about the moments that we're creative. Like, it's never during that business hours, you know. When you come up with your best ideas, it's when you're having lunch, when you're on a walk, when you're on the toilet. Like, you know, let's be honest. Like, when do those creative moments come? And it comes in the off moments, right? When our mind is loose and easy, when we're not constrained by a to-do list, but we're freed from that. And a 50-50 relationship is destined for conflict. Um, we will always have conflict if we relate with people. Um, we will expect something of someone and they will fall short and then we will have a conflict due to that. 
And uh, have you ever had a fight with somebody and all you do is rehearse that talk? And then not only are you thinking about what you said and what was said, uh, you end up in those moments of um, quietness and solitude and you find yourself totally um, enraptured and consumed with thoughts of the offending party. And uh, I think we've experienced that before. And uh, we move into this compulsive behavior where we're always like gathering artillery, right? We're like trying to uh, rummage through all past conversations, like what can I say to bring up to kind of defend myself or uh, in some ways passive-aggressively attack. And I, I think the conflict that results from this expectation, one of the greatest things that is suffocated from our lives is creativity. Um, uh, because of the disappointment in the relationship in the off moments, I'm, I'm just inundated with thoughts of thinking about what happened, why I'm angry, why I'm hurt. And those are the moments that could have been spent Creatively, thinking about other stuff productive for your life. Instead, not only has the relationship stagnated, it has actually regressed. Because I, I'm, I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next. You know, if this person says this, I'm going to uh, rebuttal with this. And uh, this banter, this consumption of energy and heart, it just it drains the mind and the energy. And uh, marriages that are based on this, they don't go anywhere. They're just always in that same little pool and uh, they haven't advanced or grown as a couple because they're always constantly trying to repair and think about, you know, uh, the things that went wrong and trying to justify oneself. And so uh, I think that's an important thing to note that uh, uh, practically speaking, I think what suffocates from the relationship is creativity and growth and a lot of potential. And um, uh, marriage... Uh, needs to have ebb and flow, uh, like this piston going back and forth. And can I give it to you in this picture? That there needs to be two people that constantly press into each other. This needs to be uh, the body language. This needs to be the position of a person's heart where you're trying to push in, press in, and pursue. What, what, what can I do to make my spouse's life a little bit easier? You know, what, what, what did my wife go through today? What must have my husband been thinking? And in marriage, when two people press into each other, there is this tension. There is this uh, thing that happens. And uh, I give this analogy in, in marriage counseling. It's as if two people, palms straight flat out like this, you are facing each other and you're trying to hold up a ball. Right? Just pushing into it. The only way this happens is uh, if there's pressure from both sides. One person can be pushing in all the way, but if the other person is completely falling back, this ball is going right to the ground. And so there needs to be this pressure of, of pursuing one another. Now, of course, the way that we express our pursuit changes. In your dating relationship, I mean, the thoughtfulnesses uh, that, that come out, they somewhat morph in marriage. But nonetheless, as you relate with your significant other or the person that you are um, sharing your life with, there is this constant pressure that must be had. And a 50-50 relationship, in my opinion, can look like a healthy relationship, but 
let's be honest, right? There are moments where we, uh, we fall back. There are moments where, let's say a person lost their job. They're just emotionally depressed. Let's say a person loses physical ability. Let's say mental capacity. And the ability for that partner to contribute into the relationship diminishes, right? And we've all gone through the funk, right? Where we don't feel motivated to get up. We don't feel motivated to participate, not only in our jobs, but in the relationship that is significant to us. And when we fall back, what needs to happen is the other person needs to come farther, needs to come and continually go. And it's as if you're not meeting at the half line. You're always pushing into the end zones. You're always saying, I will go all the way. I am willing to go 100%. And two people at different junctures in time must always be willing to do this. Unless a party is willing to go 100%, there could be a moment in the relationship where the ball falls. Right? Because if a person retreats all the way through disability, mental disability, whatever it might be, and the other person needs to go all the way as a full-time caretaker, you can still hold up the ball if the individual is willing to go to the end zone. But there needs to be pressure on both sides. There needs to be contact. contact right? Because there are times where, uh, there, where the wife is just not there. And there are times when the husband isn't there. But there needs to be this constant moving back and forth, this ebb and flow of a good relationship. Conflict is inevitable, but there must be a constant pursuit. This is how we drop the ball. We drop the ball when we Say, you know what, like I mentioned yesterday, we have this imaginary sheet with a line down the middle, our name on this side, our partner's name on that side. Every time I do something for the relationship, I write it down mentally in my mind. Every time I see my spouse do something, I write it down on her side of the paper. And as it goes, it kind of goes like this, it goes like this. But if it starts to tack up on this side and it's not on this side, I start to feel resentment. I start to feel as though, why aren't you doing something that is significant for the relationship? I'm doing so much, I feel I'm tired, and you have not contributed the way I thought you could, and that you have in the past. And suddenly, when these moments of unmet expectation and dissatisfaction and hurt and resentment come up, what do I naturally do? I naturally pull back a little bit. I don't give as much. Because I could have been on this pattern of giving and giving and giving, but as soon as I feel there's not a lot of stuff here, I start to slow down. And I start to, to slow down, and I wait at the, at the midline, and I say, wait a minute, I'm here. I have contributed this much, but there's this gap. There is this depletion of what you have done. Come on, shore up. Bring your end of the bargain up to the line, and let's have a good marriage here. And so how marriages fail is because a person was only willing to go halfway. And suddenly what happens to my, my words of affection? They dry up. What happens to, to the effort that I give to show concern and love for my spouse? Those are few and far between now. Because I'm waiting now. I'm waiting to be shown respect. I'm waiting to be given something. I'm waiting for the hours of service to happen on this side. And I'm like, I'm, I'm here. I'm ready. I'm full. I, I've done all of this. And we wait. But the sign of regression or stagnation of, of me, and I, 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 I communicate that in indirect ways to my spouse, that I'm... I'm not happy with you. Um, you haven't done enough. And I communicate that in my tone, in my body language, and in every way. And what do you think happens to the person on the receiving end? Because on the receiving end, this person has his own tally, her own tally, right? And they're not feeling necessarily the same imbalance that I feel. And if they feel me pulling away because I feel like I've given already and so I'm pulling back, 
what happens to the mind of this person? A further regression, right? And it becomes this back and forth spiral that goes downward. Because I show less affection and this person feels unloved, they don't show respect in any way. And what begins to happen is this downward spiral going back and forth, back and forth, and it goes all the way down, and it all started because of a need of equity. The protest for equity is what ruins relationships. Because we fail to give what the relationship needs in times of struggle, if that's what we demand. Most marriages fail because of this. Whether in the realm of finances, childcare, working hours. However you add it all up on the, on the sheet, the demand for equity is what will send the relationship downhill very fast. And it sneaks up on us. I mean, you've all had a great relationship with a friend and suddenly you feel an imbalance in the friendship. What happens to the friendship? You had a great working relationship with your manager or your boss or your company and you felt compensated for the work that you gave, but suddenly you feel they're not showing up to their end of what you have given in. What happens to the, the work environment? What happens to the motivation in work? It falls quickly. It's amazing how a happy career can fall in a weekend. It's the same for a relationship. This protest, this keeping score, it's like, I mean, practically speaking, how do marriages work, right? It's like one person prepares dinner, I made dinner, you do the dishes, right? right. I, I gave the kids a shower, so you put them to bed. Practically speaking, in my opinion, a healthy marriage looks like on an aggregate average of their entire life together, it looks like it's a 50-50 thing, right? But that doesn't represent the day-to-day -day operations of the marriage. A day-to-day -day is not a steady 50-50-50-50-50 all the way to the end of their marriage. It's like ebb and flow, 90-10, 65-35, 45-55, 75-25. And the average whole of the entire marriage of a healthy one, it does look 50-50 in my opinion. But the day-to-day -day, uh, dealings with one another can never be the protest for 50-50. And so I, I want you to separate that because there are times I've seen marriages that are very one-sided where uh, one person, like you can see it, one person is giving a lot more into the relationship uh, than the other person. And as I've seen it, you can have still a, a long, um, good marriage even with a limp where it's more dominant on one side, and you can, I think you can have a 65-35 good marriage all the way if the two parties kind of understand this dynamic. But what I've seen is, even though you can walk all your life on a limp, it's hard to walk with one leg. Right? So there needs to be some form of participation from both parties, right? One person is completely retreated from the relationship, I don't want to do anything, right? And I expect you to do everything. This marriage will never succeed. Even though one person is willing to go 100%, that person will burn out. It'll fizzle and die, right? And so there can be a sense of imbalance throughout the marriage, but it cannot be a one-legged race here, right? There needs to be two people present and involved in the relationship. But as I see a great marriage, the average again looks 50-50 at the end as you calculate it day by day, but the operations moment by moment never, ever, ever looks like this. Right? And so this is why I, I, I say this, and I, and I want us to be able to abandon this type of thinking of waiting at, at the half. And the Bible says to husbands, husbands, love your, love your wives like Jesus 
love the church. And that's Ephesians 5, if you can flip there. Verse 22. It says this, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. That sounds great. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands, right? As the church does to Jesus. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be uh, to their husbands in everything. In verse 25, it flips the paradigm a little bit. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so it says to the wives, I want you to to serve your husbands as the church serves Christ. But to the husbands, it's not about service. I want you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do for the church? It was never this expectation of equal participation. It wasn't like, if you shore up your end of the bargain, if you kind of tidy yourself up a little bit, okay, then I'll save you. Then I'll love you. That is not how Christ loved the church. Even in our feebleness and wayward ways, Christ came and He loved us completely and wholly. That is how the Bible is calling husbands to love their wives. That while we were yet sinners, the Bible says Christ died for us. Here is a good thing. Splitting tasks because of necessity and strategic effectiveness. Like, like you know, um, coming, uh, getting the kids ready in the morning or doing different things. Coming to church, there's like, uh, we got 10 minutes to get out of the house and these three things need to get done. It is best if we both get involved in these three things so that we can actually get out of the house in 10 minutes. That's this planning and strategic effectiveness, that, that, in my opinion, is a good thing, right? Just understanding the dynamics. And, you know, we both got two, two, two sets of hands here. We got two bodies, and I think two are better than one. And in this, what we want to do is let's do it this way. I'm good at this, you're good at that, and so let's tackle it this way. That's a good, effective communication in a relationship. That's a good thing, right? This is not a demand for 50-50, This is just understanding we have a particular task or a goal in mind and the best way to achieve this goal together as a married unit is to be able to do it this way. And so we divide it up a little bit. That's great. It's not a protest for 50-50. Here's a bad thing. Demanding equal participation because of fairness and personal displeasure. The mindset is different. The first was goal-oriented, wasn't it? It was like, we need to get this done. We can both be involved. Let's do it together. It was goal-oriented. The second one is what? It is, very, it is not about the goal. It is about, I just care what I've done and what you, you need to be doing this, right? It is about the activity, not the goal, right? It's about, I've done this much activity right now, and you have not, so you better do your activity so that I feel fair in the relationship. Not about what we're trying to accomplish together. It's about my equity or fairness or feeling of fairness. And this is what destroys it. Because when a person demands fairness, they speak in a way that is demanding and derogatory and demeaning. Even if it's not uh, intentional or aggressive and outright, it comes out because it's this protest. And... um, we, we need to move away from, from that and that 50-50 mentality, that scorecard mentality. And um, I hope you can remember that, that a marriage isn't 50-50. A dating relationship can be 50-50, I think, right? A work relationship can be 50-50, but a marriage is not. 
that I need to change my mentality in marriage there. It must. It, it must. Um, the last myth that I'll talk about is couples that truly love each other won't have feelings of doubt about one another. Uh, this kind of bleeds back into the, uh, this idea of marrying the one, right? Um, that when uh, two people are meant to be married, uh, when two people have a great marriage, they, they shouldn't doubt one another. That, uh, because doubt, it, it kind of it fractures the stability of the marriage. And, uh, but I, I think two people that truly love one another, that have Christ's intentions for one another, can have feelings of doubt. And why I say this is because I don't want you to destroy a relationship because of odd feelings of doubt, because of moments of insecurity. Don't damage the relationship and feel as though there's no hope in the relationship because you had a weekend of doubt. Right? Those doubts can exist and the relationship can still be healthy is what I'm trying to say. Right? Because too often we exit out of the relationship when we feel as though the, the doubt is too high. Right? That I'm just not sure about this anymore. Right? And, um, if, I, if I may, I'd like to read something that I, I wrote some years ago three years ago to be exact. Uh, it was 3 a.m. the morning after Father's Day in 2014 and I was suddenly gripped with the fear of the possibility that Jenny could be unfaithful. Did I ever have these feelings before? No. Did she do anything to make me think that she was cheating? No. But the thoughts that were swirling through my mind were making me feel very vulnerable and afraid. This was uncharted territory for me. I had never felt anything like this before and I don't I didn't know how to handle it. I felt vulnerable because I had questions that I wanted to ask, but I knew would jeopardize the calmness of our marriage and family life. I just wanted to make the thoughts go away, but it wasn't that easy. So what did I do? I got up and I started writing this. Here's the context. I was currently working from home as I pastored our church plant, City Chapel, that was only a year old at the time. Jenny was in her third year working as an office manager at a dental office run by a husband-wife duo. We had two young boys, Jacob, who was three, and Christopher, who was one and they needed a lot of attention and care, and I'd become the primary caregiver for the children, and Jenny became the primary breadwinner in that season, which was a shift we willingly made uh, because of the decision for me to leave a ministry position with a higher income to plant a church. We had normal disagreements from time to time, but nothing too taxing or abnormal. I loved my marriage and my family life. Both Jenny and I had been doing our very best to support our family, raise our kids, and nurture the church. Despite the immense challenges and responsibilities of pastoring an infant church and raising an infant child, I felt a tremendous sense of gratification in doing both. God was teaching me so much about one as I interacted with the other. The many parallels of pastoring and parenting were emerging. The similar life stage of both child and church. Christopher was born two weeks after the launch of City Chapel. Kept me on my toes because of the level of care both demanded. And the only reason that I was awake that early morning writing this was because Jenny's job demanded long working hours. She left the house at 8.30 in the morning and usually didn't get back until 8.30 at night, by which time the kids were fed, showered, and ready for bed. I had grown into the role of Mr. Mom, and it wasn't all that bad. I, I really enjoyed the kids. It was draining, yes, but nonetheless very gratifying to have such a powerful influence over the lives at a such important time in their development. Getting back to the issue of Jenny's work, she was an integral part of the dental practice that was only about five years old. She was on a first-name basis with most of the patients, offered great service, increased collections year over year, and was working multiple positions at the time because of employee turnover. She wasn't behaving strangely. She wasn't trying to hide things. She didn't do anything that set off alarms. She simply worked late and came home late, or, and came home tired. 
And that morning, I got slammed with feelings of doubt that were very unwelcome. In those moments, my mind began to wander. Was she ever alone with the husband doctor? Could she be lying about anything? Dealing with patients all day, calling insurance companies, and navigating through office drama definitely takes a toll on a person. But was there a deeper reason that she was at times less affectionate and more interested in sleep? And the list of questions could go on. And as they continued, those feelings of vulnerability and fear crept in. Who could I talk to? Should I talk to anybody about this? Is this just one night of paranoia? Should I just let it pass? Will it pass? I wasn't in the midst of a breakdown, but I was seriously annoyed by the charade of what-ifs that were beginning to anchor in my mind. And so here's what I did. Number one, I faced the reality that I wasn't immune to feelings of doubt, no matter how strong I perceived my marriage to be. Two, I determined not to bring up any conversation on my wandering thoughts prematurely. Even though I knew that she could handle my doubts, I didn't want to corner her emotionally and make her uneasy about coming home a little late. And three, I ended up resolving to trust my spouse and recommitting the security of our relationship to God. And quite simply, I lifted up my hands that very night and I prayed. I prayed for protection for my own heart against an enemy that wanted nothing more than to see another marriage go down a rocky road of accusations and bitterness. And I, I share this in a personal way. I haven't even shared this with Jenny. Um, I, I dealt with that that night for me. Um, again, she didn't do anything to alarm me or there was nothing. It was just she was tired when she came home and I felt like the, uh, the Mr. Mom, uh, where's my love type thing, right? And I think those feelings of not receiving affection or the time that I needed at that particular time after taking care of two boys and doing everything that was needed up until those late hours, I think my mind began to wander and I began to doubt and those were very, very unwelcome. But I, I, I want to piece it all together in these myths. And I talked about this idea that marriage was supposed to make me happy, and we need to shatter that. We talked about uh, uh, this idea of marrying the one and how that will set this marriage on autopilot and how that idea needs to be destroyed. And we talked about that marriage is a vertical promise. It's more than a piece of paper. And today we're talking about shattering the idea of 50-50 and even, know, even knowing that a marriage can weather the storm and be healthy through seasons of doubt. And as you piece this all together, um, what I, I really hope for each and every one of us, whether single, dating, or married, is that we find a place of security in Christ in knowing that I can commit to a relationship and give all that is needed and press in as I can, as Christ has called me to, and that I can make any situation work that there is nothing in marriage that should give me the license to throw in the flag and say, hey, uh, this is uh, no more, it can't work anymore. Now, there are biblical grounds to end a marriage, and that's okay. But what I'm saying is that a marriage can weather every single storm, that it can go through those things if two people can strongly believe in certain principles that build a great marriage. And as we do that, I really hope that for you in your future marriages, that you build it on principles that are lasting. That there won't be a protest for equity, but it will be about a goal-oriented participation. Uh, that you will know that you are called to have a great marriage, a God-honoring marriage in that regard. And as we end uh, here today, um, I, I, I want to end with a declaration. Hun, maybe you can come back a little bit. I want to have a time of prayer. Uh, um, I, I want to give you some time um, to interact uh, with God and what He's spoken to you this weekend. 
And I'll, I'll give you two guide sentences for whatever stage of life you might be in. And you could use these two statements uh, in your prayer. But uh, these commitments that I, that I put on the screen here, uh, Lord, in singleness, I commit to seeking a greater expression of worship and service to you before all other pursuits. And Lord, in marriage, I commit to covenant relationship with my spouse, forsaking the personal satisfaction and investment versus return mentalities that ruin too many relationships and marriages. Um, as you take these few moments as we close out our service today, um, would you just allow God to solidify some of the truths that He placed in your heart this weekend? Whether through the sessions or small groups or through the off fun moments that we've had this weekend, don't leave this retreat uh, with relationships that are as frail as when you came in. Don't leave here uh, with a marriage that is on the rocks in the same way as you came in. Don't leave here with the same expectations in your dating relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend as you came in. And I hope that there can be something significant in, in your heart, that you know that you were created for uh, an enjoyment of Christ, that that's the greatest pursuit, that I might find a spouse and a great spouse at that, but my calling in life and my chief enjoyment is not about enjoying my partner. It's about enjoying who Jesus is and how He created me. And Christ wants you to have more than a good marriage and family. He wants you to be a passionate Christ follower. And a part of being a passionate Christ follower is being a passionate and Christ following husband, father, mother, wife. That's a part of it. But that's a subset of the greater calling in our lives. And I hope we can embrace that. And uh, in your marriage, I, I hope that you can embrace the, the proper truth. So I'll give you a few moments to reflect and to pray on that.